0: It is the Chicagoverse Unlimited podcast featuring interviews of the premier artists and industry in the Chicago music community My name is Haima Black. I host this podcast at DynastyPodcast.com This week, Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins in an interview recorded for Illinois Entertainer. Here's how that sounds Haima Black here for Illinois Entertainer and Dynasty Podcast and I'm here with Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins. How are you doing, sir? I'm awesome. (laughs) It's a lot going on for you, man. Um, I appreciate you taking some time. You know, you're at this really, really busy point with so many different projects, and and I was kind of like, you know, going over everything that's happening for you, but it really got me thinking that pretty much really it feels like since the Pumpkins really got known, you have always sort of been busy. It seems like you've always opted to have more going on than less. Is that just kind of how you thrive, just, you know, just having a lot happening? Um...
1: Well, you know, when I was a kid, I would make a lot of demos and stuff, and so I kind of got in this groove of making a lot of music. <clears throat> and I always thought it was, that's what you did, you know? Like painters paint and sketch, and then you would get, when you get into the business part of mu- the music, then it's like, wait, slow down, <laughs> only this song matters, these other fifty ones don't matter. And then, of course, in the middle of the sort of Pumpkins uh, first era, um, we had a lot of success with B sides and stuff like that. Then they loved. Then they oh, more, more, more. So then it was like then I got sort of cranked back up into work. And and then uh, when things didn't go as well, then it was almost like people were like, "Wait, you're putting out too much." And then so I st- I started shelving albums. And um, so it's more been my relationship with how the world uh, uh, takes in information. And and I'm not saying I had some future vision plan uh, in this regard. But what I mean is that. The way the world works with social media actually is more commensurate to the way I work as an artist, which is in pieces and, and in, uh, you know, obsessive moments and I kind of discard things and maybe somebody's interested in the discarded thing thirty years later where in the time they'd be like, wait, I don't want to hear your dreck. <laughs> and now they want to hear the melancholy dreck or something, you know, it's right. kind of weird because as an artist I just always produced all this work product is what they call it in art. So. Um, Maybe now with social media, there's this kind of rhythm where it's like, you know, the work product from 19, 1994 meets the the new release of 2014 meets the social media moment over here. Like, maybe it's all kind of adding up into, into the right bits and
0: squares. Uh, maybe that makes some kind of sense. No, it does, you know, because I saw that there's, like, so many things on deck that it, it looks like you want to kind of produce going forward over the next months or years, you know, from, like, basement tapes from the 80s to... You know, just so many different things. So, yeah, I think it really does match the kind of climate of where we're at now, where before, like, one album every two years was enough. And now it's like, you haven't released an album since Tuesday. What are you doing? Yeah, and unfortunately, um, the main part of the public is very
1: quality driven, meaning if it's not a single, if it's not the greatest thing they've ever heard, and they're not having the greatest day of their life, it's not really worth their while because there's obviously so much pulling it. Their attention, and I'm in the same position as a consumer. So um, maybe I've kind of found a better way to balance those forces where my expectations are set. So, for example, when I release an album like Aegea, which is experimental synth recordings from 2007, I'm not trying to go out there and hype it to the sky. I set it on the website, I sold it to who wanted it, and then that's it. Other people said and kind of got interested and came from the outside well, what is this? What are you trying to do? But I'm not promoting it like I would promote say a, a Smashing Pumpkins release so it's kind of interesting because now I'm on the opposite end where I'm, I'm actually downplaying certain things because I realize that you don't want to throw everything into the mall where when I was younger I would kind of always get offended like what do you
0: mean you don't want to hear my weird you know album <laughs> um, now I, now I kind of get it yeah you know, I know that you kind of documented this on the website, on the new Smashing Pumpkins website, which is very informed and plugged into what's happening, but you just finished the, you know, one of two new albums that are in the works for the Smashing Pumpkins, Monument 2 Monument and Elegy. Kind of how was that experience, you know, now that it's over, you know, kind of looking back at it a little bit, how did that experience go for you? Uh, it was
1: actually really good. Um, we did a lot of pre-production work as we would call it so before we got actually got to making the album in the official capacity I mean I think we did maybe three rounds of demos and Tommy Lee was obviously part of that process too so by the time we actually got to making the record it was sort of like oh okay we know exactly what we're doing you know all the issues have been kind of worked out and we just kind of finished it and so in that way it wasn't a lot of torment or uh, stream and drying you know but now we're just about to go into another one so it's like I almost kind of can't I, my brain <laughs> it's like okay we're mixing that in a week or so but once that's done it's like shh, down to the next
0: one well and you're aiming to get that out before the end of the year is that the plan maybe uh, the general plan at the moment is december 9. wow yeah tommy lee how did he get involved how was it working with him because obviously you know he's somebody who's just like a complete veteran complete pro the the apocryphal story was we were working on a song and jeff uh, pumpkin's
1: guitar player uh, had heard me say something about we need someone who plays like Tommy Lee on the song and Jeff said well why don't we get the real thing and it, of course it would never have occurred to me and I know Tommy a little bit so I just called him up and said would you be interested and he said can you know your typical stuff can you send me some demos of course I'm interested but you know I'm busy and dumb. so I, I, just, I actually just jumped, jumped on a plane and went to LA to see him because Tommy's very much a people person I knew if I sat with him and I played him and I explained what I was looking for if he liked it he'd give me a straight answer and by the end of hearing the demos he was like let's do it
0: And so that was it, we were in. Looking at the way you operate now, versus I think, you know, the the model before where the Smashing Pumpkins was kind of four set people, and and there were some changes at times, but in people's head it was four set people, and now it seems like it is kind of a case-by-case, almost freelance operation. Is that easier, or kind of how does that compare to the the set model of the 90s? Um,
1: You know, I think the set model ultimately is easier for music, but was much harder personally. Um, maybe because of you know my wanting to do so much. Maybe if I'd only cranked out 10 songs every two years, maybe that would've made life easier for everybody, but that wasn't the thing. And so my work ethic meeting their uh, their expectations and of course the world's expectations, which were shifting through the 90s, not just for the band, but also culturally for what rock meant and or the death of rock, what, me- what rock meant, <laughs> the death of that idea. So yeah, I think now at least it's, it's I kind of, I can, I can, being in a band sometimes to trying to move an army, you know, like some, I'm a little bit of a historian and sometimes when I think about like epic battles of, you know, Roman battles, when you think like, just imagine what it was like to try to feed those armies or where do those armies sleep, you know, the logistical aspects and that's sort of what it's like to be in a band. There's a sort of a logistical aspect that sort of is counterintuitive to, getting four people in a room and making music. So the good part is like the way it works now is we don't really have much of that. It's sort of like a case-by-case basis to use your parlance. And um, in this case, I looked around and I thought Jeff was the only person who really understood what it was I wanted to do and was on the same page. And in many ways was more hardcore about what the band needed to do um, emotionally, spiritually than I was because I, I wasn't really sure how I felt about it anymore. And it was really Jeff who sort of cracked the whip and said, we've got to take this to another level or let's just move on. And so I, I responded to that, and Tommy was part of that. It was like,
0: OK, we're going to go here. Well, let's find somebody who can take, take it up and even another notch. And he's definitely that type of musician. Now, you know the next kind of step for the Smashing Pumpkins, it sounds like, is is day for night, correct? That's the new that's the the next new record beyond the one yeah, that's so, Yeah. Uh, kind of what's the next step with that? It sounds like you're like, you know, are the songs already written for that or? Yeah. There's a there's a huge pile of songs. Of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and some I really
1: really like, but you know, I guess we start with the template of like what kind of record we're trying to make with uh, monuments as an album. It was like, look, we have to make a particular statement, and so everything was sort of run through that particular buzzsaw. I think Day for Night is really about making kind of a a final statement about uh, maybe the... God, I don't even know what the word would be. I want to say spiritual essence, but it sounds so so new age. You know, the the Pumpkin started as an idea, and in a way it's going to end as an idea. That doesn't mean the band's going to stop functioning as a band. I think the band's just going to stay with me no matter what I do, which is fine by me. I'm totally cool with it. But as far as making music, I see, I see day for night as kind of having a finality to it. But it's not a finality of like, ta-da, 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 here's the ending, or one more uh, one more song like, you know, Chair uh, Rock or something. I don't see it like that. I see it about trying to bring a resolution everything that I've been through on the journey that started in my bedroom and in many ways will end in my bedroom, although that sounds very sultry. Um, <laughs> so. So yeah, I think we're looking for a way to kind of resolve the note, and and I think the way the best way for the pumpkins to do that, whether you know how, how are you define the pumpkins in your mind, me or others or me with others, um, I think it's about trying to find this push into a, into a different form of experimental experimenting. Doesn't mean it wouldn't be popular music. Doesn't mean it wouldn't be rock music. But I think I've got to turn one more corner with it for me to really feel like okay. If, if, if Day for Night was the last Pumpkins album I ever made and I'm not saying that's what I, my intention is I'm saying it's how I look at it if it starts with Gish and it ends here does that tell a story and that's how I see Day for Night it's like the, it's, the, it's the end of the movie and it's not the movie I wanted to make if the first half of the movie was what most people remember and the second half of the movie has been whatever this has been um, it's, it's, it's it's trying to find that like okay that that was an interesting movie and, and maybe I want to watch it again um, I'm looking for a point of resolution. And I think the only way to do that with the Smashing Pump is not to be safe, it's actually to do the opposite. It's to be very dangerous and, and, and edgy, but within the context of modern music and not some prog rock concept, which um, I mean, even the hipster writers don't even really pay attention to that stuff anymore. They pay lip service to that stuff, but, you know, they write much more about popular artists than they do the hipster artists. So I think at the end of the day, you have to make a, a contemporary album that is experimental so that, in a way, the
0: artistic mantle of the band is complete. It starts with an experimentation and ends with an experimentation. Well, you know, really talking about experimental Pumpkins album, like, adore. Good C. <laughs> yeah. Very pro. Yeah. Uh, uh, Obviously, the Adore reissue is on deck, and that's a record that really, I mean, you want to talk about Misunderstood, when it came out, and you guys are coming off just being the biggest band in the world, I mean, I don't need to tell you, but that's a record that has lived a lot of different places from where it was then to, I think, the perception of it now, you know, for fans and critics, what was it like kind of revisiting that entire period? Well, luckily, there's
1: enough time now where I don't have any kind of emotional uh, bias to it. I really can just listen to the music and say, is that effective? you know, was what I was trying to say or what I thought I was trying to say, does that come across? And, and it's funny because something like Ava Door which was the first single off the album in 1998, um, you know, didn't do well on the charts. Uh, you know, the video was too weird. If that song came out today, it's actually fairly contemporary. The video is fairly contemporary. It's kind of funny. So hindsight sort of softens my opinion, but I don't have an emotional disappointment or reflection on it anymore. I see it as like, that's a pretty good song. I recorded it basically in a day. Um, probably wrote it even faster, and uh, I like it. It's, it holds up well. Other stuff I look—it's a little creaky, little antiquated. Uh, says more about my sentimentalism or what I was going through out of you know so much loss in my life at the time. And so, but I can look at it very impassively, like just you look at a picture of yourself from twenty years ago and what, go, "Why am I wearing that shirt?"
0: And right. oh, that's a good haircut. You know, that's how I look at this stuff now. And after that is the machina. Package, repackaging, and that's going to be like the entire kind of Machina concept and story and, and album and, and song set, right? Just all the works. Yeah, the the, the difference with Machina maybe that's different from the other uh, reissues that have come out is
1: Machina was never really finished in the way that it was conceived. It's sort of like a, like a lost film or a, a movie that was never or it got like some weird edit and and now here's the director's cut. So in essence, we're trying to figure out how to do the director's cut. But because it was never finished, it's like you almost have to kind of go back into it and say, well, how would you finish it? And is it important to finish it how you would finish it in 2000? Or is it important to finish it how you would finish it in 2014? I'm leaning more towards 2014. Yeah. I think the elements are there to make a very kind of interesting statement. And so it may be at the end of the day, will be longer and sort of stranger, but also more clear in what the purpose of the album would what the album was about, which was really about the death of the band. Um, I sort of wrote about the death of the band as the band was dying, which was a weird thing to do. And I didn't, I didn't set out to write about that. It was actually, in the beginning, was meant to be more of a spiritual exercise. Um, but in a way, like how those things work, the spiritual exercise ended up being reflected in the death of the band, and the death of the band ended up being part of the spiritual exercise. So if I can put all those pieces together and, and have that be somewhat clear. And part of my motivation is I think of all the you know the original lineup-ish albums from from the 90s, uh, Machine is probably the one that's most misunderstood in terms of what it was meant to do and what it actually did do because of the the, the turns in music, the turns in my public perception at the time, which were you know, poisonous, and and which I played into. I, I found something the other day, and it was like some quote for me, and I was like, wow, I was really playing this character. <laughs> I really went there. And I never actually told anybody in the press that I was playing a character, which would, you know, again, fits perfect in the cosplay world of today. But at the time, it was very strange. Why would you play a character of yourself that's a perceptional thing that's not you? And, I mean, it would even confuse managers and stuff, and the band abandoned the, the process. Uh, as we were doing it. And so I was sort of a man on an island alone. So I'm a man on an island here again trying to finish this uh, work, which I really believe in still. And the funny thing that I would add, slight addendum to that, is is it's funny to me in the past probably five years, a do- uh, Machina is the most talked about album uh, with me with from musicians. Hmm. It's amazing how many, and you know pretty fairly famous musicians will come up and they want to talk about Machina. So that tells me that there's a lot there that's sort of not been yet figured out. And maybe in a way, it's like, uh, comparatively, maybe it's like a Quadrophenia or something where it's like, not everybody gets it. Even as a Who fan, I don't, it's even only recently that I started to kind of understand Quadrophenia, how personal it is, and it's great work, you know, and I'm not trying to compare but, uh, you know, maybe in that way, it's that it's that when it's
0: like, even I don't totally understand it, but it still deserves kind of a finish. Well, at the end of the month, there's a really cool event happening um, end of the month, August 30th, happening at Ravinia. You were doing a really unique show that I, I think you haven't really done anything like this in this format, where you're going to be like not tied to Smashing Pumpkin songs, not tied to solo songs. You're dipping across like the entire continuity as it yeah. were. Kind of what prompted this kind of event? Uh, well, I'd been talking
1: about it for a while, and we'd even contemplated doing something like as cheesy as it may sound, Smashing Pumpkins Electric, Smashing Pumpkins Acoustic. Because unfortunately, the way it's been going the last few years is not as much of the softer or ballady Pumpkins material is getting played because most of the audience are coming very much for the perceptional idea of what Smashing Pumpkins is, which is a grunge band, which of course couldn't be further from the truth. So we're in this kind of weird place where we can't really fight City Hall anymore. It's not even worth it. Um, You know, you just get a bunch of angry Twitter people um, writing. Why didn't you play today? Yeah, exactly. And, I, and, and I'm at a point in my life now where I'm totally cool with that. It's like, I get it. Like, you want to go see that band, then that's the forum. So this for me is more like, a, I get to play all this other material that I've written and do it the way that I would like to do it. I think where it's still a difficult translation point is, no one, <laughs> as strange as it may sound, and even strange sounds, sound, strange, sounds strange to me in thought, is as, as much as people think they know me, they don't know me as a solo artist because I'm so identified through the, through the pumpkins or I'm identified through the things I've tried to do as a solo artist, they don't really know the songwriter that wrote all these songs. So my per- approach is more as the songwriter, but because people don't always identify me as a songwriter, say as much as they would like a Pete Townsend or something, it's kind of in a weird position because they don't know what concert they're coming to see. So I'm getting pressure from behind the scenes. Can you be more obvious about what you're going to do? I, there was even suggestions that I should put out the set list, you know? Again, and we're right back in the same camp. It's like, you know, what am I
0: supposed to do? Shout on the mountaintop. Yeah, I'm gonna play those seven songs that I'm supposed to play at every concert. That sounds like, you know, like a studio just being like, hey, I don't know if people are gonna come see this movie. Please tell everyone what the ending is before they show up. That's sort of the feeling that I get, and I, and I, and I, and I
1: would put the responsibility on me. I think like any brand, and I, and, I, and I hate that word, but I think that's the word that applies, you have to tell a story to explain why that exists. And unfortunately, as much work as I've done in public, people don't know me, the person. (laughs) They think they do, but they don't because I've always hidden behind different personalities. So to actually go out and say, I'm a songwriter, here's an overview of my work, you know, me cherry picking through it in the way that I want to tell a different kind of story than I would say within the context of The Pumpkins, people don't know that story. And I haven't given them that, so maybe this is the beginning of that. But at this early point, it's a hard translation because they don't really know, and they just wanted to fall back to the pumpkins. And when I have these stupid phone calls with, you know, people you can imagine, the idea is, well, then then you should have told me you wanted to call it Smashing Pumpkins, and I might as well just get it. You know what I mean? Why don't we just do what everybody wants? It's that weird thing, like, you step outside the door, and then suddenly you're expected to do the thing you're known for, but you didn't bill it as that, so why are, I, I can't follow this anymore.
0: Well, you know, with this event, I mean, I've, I've seen kind of discussion that it sounds like there might be like swan songs, solo songs, all these different things. What was it like kind of revisiting this material that at least publicly it does not appear you've really like kind of contacted and connected with for a long, long time? Um, funny thing is I
1: actually kind of pay more attention to the material behind the scenes than maybe I would publicly because I've been, you know, I've cast myself back into the pumpkin roll for seven or eight years now. So, yeah, I'm pretty familiar with Zwan songs I would want to play and are still close to me, what I feel uh, have stood the test of time, and some solo stuff and some unreleased stuff. And So it's cool. It's, a, it's an interesting vibe, and uh, Jeff and I have been working hard to try to kind of define how to move the show through, you know, because it's like, because people say, well, is it acoustic? It's like, kind of, you know, because if you say rock, then we're right back in the same boat. You know, if you say, well, we're going to have electric guitars, then the expectations is, you know, there's a... There's a fuzz pedal not far from the end of that. So it's, it's a difficult sell for us. Um, but I definitely feel really good. And I've played enough you know, solo stuff to know. People are generally surprised at how different I sing. Um, they're generally surprised that there's all these songs that they don't know that are fairly high quality songs. So I feel really good about the quality of the show. I just think from where we're standing right now to, that, to the actual moment of being on stage, we're still trying to figure out how to explain to people what it is without actually saying, this is what we're going to play. And maybe at the end of the day, I may have to actually say that because maybe that's the only way to explain it. I don't want to. I, I think shows should be somewhat like a surprise. I don't want to go see the movie if I know what the ending is. But maybe in this case, I'm going to have to explain because... Um, but even then, if I, t- if I if I tweeted out the set list right now, I still don't think people would know what the show's like because not every song's going to be played the way it was played. Like, if you play a one song, we're not necessarily going to play it the way... That that Zwan played it. Or we might be more like the Jijali Zwan swan, a sound, which was more kind of uh, folky. So um, even then, it's a bit of a clusterfuck.
0: Well, you know, final question. I know you've got a lot going on. There's, there's so much happening in the world of Billy Corgan right now. What's the best part of everything that's that's going on for you right now? Because there is so much happening and, you, and you're operating kind of at such a high frequency.
1: I think the best part is, um, and this is something I've been sort of warbling about for a long time, is You're finally seeing now, and I'm seeing it personally, let's call it peer-to-peer artist-to-commerce models, where it's okay for an artist to sell something if the artist, in particular, can set their expectations. So something like Igea, I was able to say, I want to release this, I designed it my own way, I set up a system by which to to sell it, and it's been great. It hasn't been perfect, we're learning how to do it better, to sell 1,000, you know, or 900 online and have to some for the tea house, great. I mean, what a great, pleasurable experience to be back on the DIY end of, here's my music, here's what I want to do. And I'm not, like, down at the, you know, the alt station saying, why aren't you guys playing my weird, you know, synthesizer song? I get it. It's like it's meant for a particular context. And I think I've also figured out that not everyone who's a Pumpkins fan is a Zwan fan, and not only is a Zwan fan, is a synthesizer fan. You know, there's, you've gotta kinda of modulate your message, but the great news is, and if it's, it's happening for me, it's gonna be happening for every artist soon, is once they figure out how much power they actually have, everything's gonna turn upside down very, very quickly. Even, and let me ramble about this for one second, even look at the festival model. You have at this point, I think, over 100 corporate festivals in America. Uh, and, and I'm hoping to you know, play a bunch of them next year. Once the artists start to figure out how much power they actually have and how much corporate money is being exchanged that isn't necessarily on the books, that's going to be very, very interesting because as you saw recently uh, with the festival we had here in Chicago, there was a certain level of complaint that maybe the headliners at the festival weren't necessarily legit headliners and oh, but they're selling the tickets before the lineups are not. There's sort of that tension that's being created because in the past 10 years in music you haven't seen a, a, a tremendous amount of headliner artists being created you have you see a lot of popularity but the idea that you can hold 60,000 people in a field at the end of a long day when you've only got maybe one or two famous songs is a tough gig for anybody right so you're seeing this weird thing where it's like the festivals are protecting themselves and at some point the artists are going to start saying well if you don't have Artist A, Artist B, Artist C, Artist D. I'm not necessarily in that category, but there are artists that certainly have more power than I do. Once they start figuring out, it's going to be interesting, are they going to start doing their own festivals? Or or are they going to break away from the festival model and set up a different kind of model where it's like, you know, I don't want to name any names, but maybe they set up a destination model themselves where uh, three days a week in this particular site, it's so-and-so's festival. And you'll travel to God knows where because you want to participate in their version of it. I think that's gonna change really quickly here, as as there's this power shift where the artists are gonna realize that they're ultimately the producer. Because there's still that shift there where the the record label still kind of runs certain things, the radio stations still run things, the festivals still run certain things, and I'm still a participant, so I'm not complaining on that level. But at the end of the day, it's something I've been harping on for over a decade. The artists have so much more power than they realize, and once they actually kind of collectively figure it
0: out, everything's gonna invert very quickly. I think you have been saying that for a long time. I think it even started you know, if not before, with Machina Two, you know, which was way ahead of its time, just in terms of the the delivery and the execution, where that dropped online when that was not a thing It's not like now and everyone calls it the radiohead model, but it's like it's you know that's been happening a lot, you know where you're right, like once artists I think realize how much power they have, it is really going to shift things differently,
1: yeah because in the old in the old model, right, uh, you make something uh like this phone. Okay, it cost me $100 to make it. In order for me to bother making it, i got to charge you $200. Well, now, and you even see it with cell phone companies. somebody goes, you know what? Let's give these things away, even though it's costing us $100, because if we get them to buy all these apps and get them to go to our stores and shop at our, we're going to make way more money. And so artists are in a very similar position, because once they realize that they don't have to necessarily sell something, you know what I mean? In essence, when, a, when, a, when, the, when the general public decides, and pick somebody who's you know uh, great and gone, like somebody like Elvis, when the general public decided in 1956 that he was, he had it, right? And he was soon, soon to be in movies, and soon to be a star, and, and, and the source of much debate. You know, So imagine how many newspapers were sold off of Elvis. Imagine how many movie tickets. Imagine how many people went to see Elvis movies, couldn't get in, went to see some other movie. Once artists start to realize that they don't have to be the main driver on a commercial sale, but that their, their personality in the world can change, can move mountains, and that maybe somehow in some other indirect way, they can get paid what they need. Maybe even some there will be artists that say, you know what, I just want to have a nice little house, and I don't need to make any more, and, and 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 not be a charity artist. But they're 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 going to put their efforts into creating new businesses, or launching new labels, or launching their festivals. And maybe you'll see artists who say, I'm going to have my own festival, and they're going to declare to the public, I don't want I want a zero-profit festival. And that artist will suddenly get four times bigger because everyone's going to be like, Wow, how cool! Yeah. So and so put on this sheet of paper exactly what everything costs. They're not, there's not even any profit here. I get to go have three great days. I love that artist forever now, and, and they'll create different relationships, different loyalties, different opportunities. As, as these material constructs break down, art can go back to doing what it's meant to do, which is inspire, promote, uh, break down boundaries, and get artists out of the servile position of saying, hey, please buy my piece of plastic and then have somebody basically argue with you why your piece of plastic isn't worth as much as a latte. You know, which gets into a really weird position and turns artists into shills. And most artists, being somewhat phony on some level, are very bad shills. And then that makes them sort of look kind of greasy. You know, And and I think, and I can say this because I'm a little older now, I think it's very easy to look back through my musical life and see where I felt uncomfortable at all those different stops with being a shill. On some level, on a prideful level, of course I wanted it to sell because I wanted to win, I wanted to dominate, I wanted to be on TV and or on the magazine cover. It's a normal thing, you know, because it means you win capital letters. But I was uncomfortable with the exchange. And so now you see this whole crop of artists coming in where maybe that exchange is not as vital to them. Social media being the first kind of, let's call it, weak version of that, which is I'm more interested in getting likes than I am in getting sales. That's all fine and good until they're about 30, and they're back working you know, at dad's hardware store because they didn't make enough to, to continue to be an artist. And that's one message that I am I, fighting for publicly, is artists must, of course, first and foremost, be in a sustainable model. And there must be, an, uh, whether it's the public or the media, there must be a sympathetic core there that allows them to be functionally, um, conti- you know, to let them be functional, continue to be an artist. You shouldn't have to sort of apologize right for wanting to uh... be a capitalist but there is a model that's coming and that's what i'm saying about some of the stuff i've been able to do through Zuzus and stuff like that there's a model coming it's it's the very faintest glimmer where you're going to be able to do peer-to-peer stuff and that opens up this incredible opportunity uh, for different relationships and different things where maybe it isn't about ten songs twice a year it could be a song a day it could be a song a 45 minute song when you fucking feel like it. And isn't that ultimately what, spiritually, what people resonate in artists more so than, hey, I like that song. Cause I like that song ultimately serves somebody else. It really doesn't serve the artist. And think of how many artists, let's say they had two hits in their musical career and it's 20 years past the date. And there, there's somebody in the field. They're waiting for those two songs. That artist is reduced to those two songs. Everything that artist means to those people is down to those two songs. I mean, how humiliating. Yeah. And I don't want to be reduced to my six songs or my eight songs or four. It doesn't fucking matter. Don't whenever, whenever, wherever you see reductionist ideologies, that's not art. That's commerce, because then it's about volume, right. it's about exploitation, it's about how do I get from you. It's like a mining, and the old major label model, which of course is essentially crumbled, it just hey, you're only going to be around four years. How do I mine out of you what I want so I can toss you aside? How do I get out of this contract as easy? How do I convince you that you're going to actually have more than four years? All those manipulations are dying really fast. And once artists turn that corner and see that they don't have to enter into a survey model, that they can build their own communities, build their own mountains, build their own musical hubs, build their own uh, you know, co-share studios, build their own media companies, I mean, shit's going to get
0: really interesting. And that, that it really excites me. Well, I I think you've really, (laughs) I think you've really tapped into that model, man. And I think it's been something that you, as an artist, have been building towards kind of finding where you're at for a long time. As somebody who, you know, both in the media and as a fan has really seen kind of all the different stages that have happened, it's like, I think you've been building towards this point in your career for a long time, it looks like. And I I think it's exciting that you're here and that you're able to really finally unlock so many things and, and put so many things out and be activated and liberated. So I, I think it's really exciting to see, and I'm really just captivated to see where it goes from here. Only thing i quibble with is, like,
1: stumbling. I'd say I've stumbled towards this destination.
0: <laughs> All right, I got to go. Thanks. All right, Billy Corgan, thank you so much, man. This has been the Chicago Chicagoverse Unlimited podcast. Thanks to Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins for being on the show this week for Illinois Entertainer. You can find more Dynasty podcasts at dynastypodcast.com. For the Dynamic Dynasty, my name is Heima Black. Dynasty descend.